I'm John Crane. And I'm Bernie Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session. With our dad, Jason Crane. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 439 for the week of June 2nd, 2014. Today's guest, bassist Giacomo Medica. For $5 a month, you get a membership in the Jazz Session, which gets you free MP3s with every show. And your $5 goes directly toward paying for my trips to New York City to record more interviews. So if you like what you hear and you would like to hear more of it, the best way is to become a member. You can do that at thejazzsession.com slash join. Please rate and review the show in iTunes. It helps it move up the rankings and makes it easier for others to find. You can also leave a comment on this particular episode at thejazzsession.com. Just look for this episode, and right below it, you'll find a place to leave your comment. You can leave one for the artist or for me, and I'd love to hear from you. I first learned about today's guest because he often plays with another former guest on the show and a friend of mine, Nico Sofiato. Giacomo Medica has been involved in a lot of creative music in New York City over the years, and we're going to talk about a couple of his projects today. Here's music from one of them, the trio Mit Marlene, bassist Giacomo Medica. My guest is bassist Giacomo Medega, and it's great to have you on the show, man. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Jason, for having me. It's great. I have uh, I've seen you play quite a number of times now, and I th- I think every time with um, Nico Sofiato, who's also been on this show. But you are also involved in many other projects, including two uh, that we're going to talk about today. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, maybe we can start with the, well, I was going to say the trio recording that actually applies <laughs> in both cases, uh, but the trio Mit Marlene, and uh, tell us a little bit about that band and the, sure. the new recording. 
Yeah, that is a, a trio that um, I thought of and put together about a year ago. Uh, actually, a little more than a year ago. Uh, I was actually thinking of some original music that I wanted to write for a sp- specific group of musicians. Um, uh, so not instruments, in other words, but particular people. Yeah, my, yeah. Okay. I was actually really thinking of Satoshi and Michael Atias, Satoshi Takeshi and Michael as the people that I wanted to um, to write some music for. Um, I had a, a conversation with Michael about, I, I don't know, we met one day, we talked about some Morton Feldman scores. Um, and then I found, my, found myself writing the music short after that. So, um, yeah, we have a CD coming out. Um, that's going to be, I think, next month on an Italian label, Splash. Trio Meet Marlene, that's the name, and the recording is titled The Surface of an Object. Talk about the name of the trio. Oh, it's a, it's a I don't know, it's a little bit of an automatic writing uh, putpourri of different things. Uh, with the usage of also parentheses for the middle word, uh, which I, I, I guess is kind of a, a tribute to an Italian um, f- movie critic that I was um, strongly influenced by when I was growing up, Enrico Ghezzi, who was also from my hometown. And so, yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a play with words, uh, putting together images in a sort of a uh, post uh, uh, way. Were you influenced by Getzi in terms of your appreciation of film or in other ways that relate more directly to music? Or, Well, I guess I was, I was influenced by him uh, directly in his writing about movies, but also in, in his writing about uh, linguistics in relationship with um, contemporary arts, uh, just the same way that you can find somebody like Bart extremely, or, uh, extremely inspiring. As a musician, so. sure. Uh, now you mentioned that you had written music for this band, which also sounds like it has, at least to my ear, a lot of freedom uh, inside that mm-hmm. that writing as well. Can you say something about the music? Um, yeah, um, I guess the title of the suite, the the surface of an object, um, is actually a description of of the music itself. I, I wanted to write music with a sort of a tactile quality to it um, again once again the starting point was some Morton Feldman's writing in which he was discussing Pete Mondrian and discussing the fact that the surface of Mondrian which really makes a lot besides the images, you know the figures themselves on on the canvases uh, the surface is something that uh, musicians have a very hard time to emulating uh, which is something that has stuck with me since, and this is something I read probably six, seven years ago. So I was obsessed, I've been obsessed with the, um, the, the strive to come up with a surface for, for the music, and which is something that has to happen in time. You know, it's, it has to be an operation in how you create something that lives in time. So this music was everything that I wrote for the for this band was meant to be an experiment with that. And then, of course, um, since we are all improvisers, and improvisation is extremely important to to me, and I would 
I would probably n never think of uh, asking improvisers like those guys to join me in a band if I wasn't too uh, going to take advantage of the you know their skills as improvisers. Then improvisation is sort of slightly detached from the written music, or at least it's not uh, directly chained to it. It's a juxtaposition that I'm fine with. Okay, so I'm interested in, in how you went about trying to express the concept of surface in this music. I'd like to dig more into that. Well, I mean, uh, it's uh, it's really a matter. I was thinking. I'm I'm still uh, uh, thinking now. It's a matter of how you project shapes in time in a way that repeats itself in an imperfect way uh, until the imperfections or the slight differences really start to become the grain of the music itself. Mm -hmm. So the shape is, uh, is important, but it's also important how it doesn't exactly repeat itself. And, and so the music plays with that. There's a lot of space between uh, everything. Um, and uh, and it's left to to the way we make it breathe. So then I I was hoping that a specific uh, way of using timbres together with this usage of time would result in some sort of a surface. Um, so are, are is can we think about it like the repeated figure is creating almost a a visual line, and then the non-repeating things being kind of changes above or below that line exactly. almost like a exactly uh, i think so it's it's like um feldman was talking about how you could try to recreate uh, very easily mondrian's paintings which would not even look similar to his actual paintings if it wasn't for how specific his surfaces are on the canvas then you don't have mondrian if you don't uh, recreate those um, the surfaces, which obviously were unique to to his sure. own technique and style, and um, you know um, sensibility. So yeah, uh, that's that's the idea.
I I've never read the piece you're referring to by Morton Feldman, but uh I'm a I'm a big fan of modern art and um in particular the work of Mark Rothko and seeing photographs of Rothko versus seeing his actual work I also find very different. And I I never I never really had terminology to describe that before, but I think that one thing is the actual tactile even though you don't touch the paintings, but the the sense of the tactile you get from standing in front of the painting versus seeing just the blocks of color represented in a photograph is, yeah, is quite I, different. I couldn't agree more with that, Jason. Yeah, and Rothko is another artist that I that I adore, and um, yeah, and this applies perfectly to him. Okay, so with this idea in mind, were there particular instructions you gave? Um, to Satoshi and Michael to achieve this effect or did you achieve it through the writing or a combination of those things? Um, there were not specific instructions. Uh, the music itself, the way it looks on paper um, has to have some sort of an eloquent quality that the musicians either translate into playing or or not in in the latter case, then you'd have to articulate in 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 talking uh, through it or describing things. With Michael and Satoshi, I, I felt that they were they were tuning to to the music just by looking at it and just trying little sections in a way that made sense to me uh, right away. So yeah, I also prefer not to uh, interpret my music for other people unless they are really misunderstanding what's on paper sure i would try to avoid that uh, also as you know as a performer of other people's music uh, i like to do it when when possible to have the freedom of of you know taking a shot at it and you know interpreting it you mentioned uh, the idea of using timbres in the performance and i've listened to this record only in headphones uh, but i was really struck well and therefore i think i was really struck by the actual recording itself. I mean, the you, there's a lot of places where you can hear the physicality. <laughs> Speaking of hearing things, who knows? Probably something dropped on the on the street. Hopefully. Uh, hopefully, yeah. There are a lot of places in this where you can hear kind of the physicality of the instruments themselves, um, the like the sounds of bodies on the instruments, because it's very closely recorded and very kind of intimately recorded, which I really like. <laughs> We're having this conversation as who knows what's happening outside. Yeah, it's also the first time I have to point out the first time that I hear the sound since I, I've lived here, which has <laughs> been almost two years. Um, uh, the, yes, uh, also the recording uh, process itself had to somewhat um, be consistent with what I wanted to achieve in terms of like the sounds. Uh, so we approached it really almost like a field recording uh, in the studio as opposed to, you know, a jazz recording. Um, uh, we we had a very noisy Wurlitzer piano, which we kept in the room with us. Uh, and you can hear it a little bit, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, you can hear extreme close-ups of any details of Michael's sound. Um, and, yeah, that, that, was, that was intentional. Yeah, uh, it really very, comes very across. cameristic, you know. Sure, yeah, I would say, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> that's great. 
I wish I had a third microphone that was just recording the ambient sounds that are happening at the same time. That's really, really great. Then we could mix this in some really interesting way. Definitely. <laughs> That'll be also feel recording yes, itself. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> this is your next album, just the interview itself. Um, so I'm interested why you wanted these two people in particular. Uh, I mean, you mentioned this affinity for talking about these Feldman writings, but what, what made you want to choose these two musicians in particular to write for Oh, um, well, I mean, I could be very simplistic and say because I love the way they, they play. Sure. Uh, which is also the bottom line. It's really what, what it boils down to. They're two wonderful human beings uh, as well, which matters a lot to me. Um, well, I, I've liked Satoshi's playing since I moved to Boston, I think, as a student. Um, I came across a couple of recordings where he was playing and I was a, was and still am a, a, an admirer of his brother um, uh, and so yeah I, I wanted to play with him uh, which I actually did in 2009 we played with an Italian violin player who was here visiting um, and then I was hoping to have the opportunity to invite him to play on my, one of my projects and it's very similar, you know, when it comes to Michael. I have always loved his playing. Uh, and um, I've always loved to converse with him. Um, uh, he's a very, very interesting person to talk to. Um, and, um, yeah, uh, uh, I, I really like his work with, with Anthony Coleman, for instance. Um, and... Uh, and Anthony speaks very highly of uh, of Michael. This may be a dumb question, but does does enjoying conversing with Michael and having those kind of affinities for the same types of thoughts does that make a difference when it comes to playing the music? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he actually gave gave me some very valuable valuable input in the writing of of this stuff because uh, some visual aspects that really appear on the paper I was um, not paying enough attention to. 
and he pointed it out. Uh, the same way that I remember uh, when I was at uh, New England Conservatory, I was studying with Anthony Coleman, the same way Anthony uh, used to draw my attention to scores um, uh, with reference to some contemporary music. So, yeah, Michael was instrumental and very, very, very helpful. So so what does that mean, visual elements on the page that needed to be paid more attention to? Um, well, uh, the importance of the, how the music looks, the importance of um, how music is written, is a, is a real insight into the mind of the composer. Um, there was a very interesting um, exhibit at uh, the Drawing Center in New York, I think three years ago, I would say, uh, on uh, Xenakis uh, scores. And... You know, it's just if if you don't have an awareness of how this music is written, um, you're missing something that helps you really understand uh, the music itself. Uh, it's an insight into the process. Just mm. the same way, it's important that you know how the score of uh, you know the silent the silence piece looks like on, on paper. You know, to to understand it a little more. Uh, cage. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So is that a is the, given that for the most part the audience won't have that understanding like the people who listen to this record for example will probably not of course see the score mm -hmm. is that an understanding that you're thinking of in terms of the musician's performance but not so much in terms of the listener's hearing of the music well that is a that is a good question I wouldn't know how to separate the two uh, the two uh, aspects. Um, from my own perspective, like uh, I think as both the listener and I listen as both the listener and the composer or the improviser. So um, I would know. I, I yeah. You know, talking about looking at the scores and about the listener having access to those visual elements. Um, I've you know thinking of my own experiences where I've heard music without seeing the score. And especially very visual scores, and then seen those scores, heard the music again, and realized what a difference it made to my understanding when I had that extra look into what the composer was thinking. Because I think sometimes it's hard, particularly with very challenging music, to to find your way in the piece as a listener, to, to have some idea. You know, if you listen to a piece of Bach, it's very easy to understand. I mean, even if the music is somewhat complex, it's very easy to understand, okay, this is what the musicians are following, and I see what's happening here. But if you listen to music which doesn't have those same easy touchstones, I think sometimes it can be hard to understand, well, what are the musicians doing? Where are they? Are they in a piece? Are they improvising? Where is the writing? How do I know? How do I follow things at all? And so I was just interested kind of in your perspective on that. I, I think it's a very, it's a very interesting topic. Um, in contemporary music, the, the score, or the lack of the score, um, is part of the methodology and really tells a story about the craft, the intention of the improvisers or the composers. So you have uh, some Braxton music um, that it's very important the way it's written on the page. Uh, in fact, that's a particular example I was thinking of. As you mentioned that. Yeah. It's just very important. And you might have... You know, from a an aesthetic point of view, some results that are similar coming from extremely different methodologies and perspectives. You know, Cage, Sorn. Um, I think that ultimately, 
the written music is just an important part part of the narrative um, because it tells a little bit about the, the intention. Um, then, of course, we can judge the result independently, which there's nothing wrong uh, with. You know, sure. Uh, yeah, we can have the experience of just hearing the music with no no grounding, no no anchor, and that's perfectly fine and valid, and that's how we hear most music. Absolutely. It's just that in the case, for me at least, of contemporary or new music or whatever whatever term we're going to apply, I have fewer... I have fewer tools, fewer. I, I have a smaller frame of reference in which to hear that music. Mm-hmm. You know, hearing a new pop song, and I really I love pop music. Hearing a new pop song, like I get how pop songs are structured, and I can hear if this one is wildly outside that structure or how well it fits inside that. And if I hear lyrics, I can tell how well they're crafted, and I have some understanding of what that means. But often in music like this, I sometimes feel like I'm okay, I can listen and I can hear the sounds and I can be emotionally affected by it. But there are times when I think, oh, I'd, well, I'd like to know, though, what happened to make this. What what was the process that got to this point? Yeah, it's very important. And again, the the result can be judged in a very independent way from from the whole process, sure. which is also fascinating, I think. Um, it's ha- Since I have recorded so far at least stuff at, at my own name, uh, mostly improvised music, uh, as you know, um, and we're talking about purely, strictly improvised music. Um, I often found that uh, music critics were uh, reading some written patterns or sketches or uh, were referring to some songs as compositions, um, which I obviously have no problems with. Um, and to me, it really does not change uh the way i i perceive the music i know that the process with each band on e- on each recording recording is anyways extremely specific sure so it at the end it's the same thing yeah um you have the 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 aesthetic and the sound and the way the music breathes in mind and it's gonna go there anyways you have sketches or either you have sketches or or not so um, yeah, and in some ways, people hearing a composition in what was freely improvised music seems actually complimentary to me. I mean, it, mm-hmm. I think it speaks to the level of communication between the musicians when free improvisation can sound like structure. Well, and in fact, I mean, most of the time it's not, obviously, it's not free. It's not free in the sense of having no common language or anything like that. You know, it's not. It, it could be. Free I mean, aliens. It's, it's never really happened to me. Sure. Uh, <laughs> but it, it could it could happen. Um I, yeah, I mean, what is free, really? I mean, uh, last night I played some duo with uh, a musician that I admire a lot, Darius Jones. Mm. Um, and we had played once or twice in the past. Um, but, you know, also because the performing itself was actually, had been preceded by him talking about music extensively, I felt that when it came to, to play, we, we were really going for a similar aesthetic, a similar kind of intention. Um, so, but again, I have nothing against trying to uh, improvise in a, an absolutely pure and non-idiomatic way or uh, intentionally trying to make things collide in interesting and unexpected ways. Mm, it's, yeah, it's part of the beauty of it, actually. Mm-hmm. 
So talk about the other current project. Which is more purely improvised. Sure, yeah. 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 Seems like a good segue. Um, yes, uh, it's, a, it's a trio recording with uh, Noah Kaplan on saxophones and Joe Moffat on trumpet. Um, it's something we recorded two years ago, um, almost, a little less. And this is a purely improvised trio. Uh, although the music, uh, the improvisations are really a distillation of a process that came from approaching some written music. And this is another uh, interesting interesting process because we got together to, to read some motets by Josquin. Okay. That's really how we started doing uh, making music as a trio. Not that we hadn't played together in the past, but this was uh, what we were going for to play to read some motets. Um, then we also started to incorporate improvisations. We played some gigs around uh, around that time. Uh, we started to incorporate improvisation with a similar intention as the motets, uh, really focusing on texture, extremely um, vertical structures and sensitive, you know, listening. Um, and then we went to a studio, we recorded both motets and improvisations. And then we ended up with only the improvisations on the actual recording, which was like hiding uh, the source. Yeah. Um, and um, it, it didn't feel like it was some sort of a, a renounce. Uh, at the end, um, uh, it's everything is still there. I mean, the the source is still in between the cracks of what we were doing, improvising. Yeah. So um, it's very it's very microtonal in a way. Although I play fretted bass there, it's very much about uh, articulation and and vertical listening of like harmonies. So it sounds like the motets were almost teaching you how to speak a language. And then you improvised in that spoken language. Is that a fair? I would statement? say so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was a very specific frame of reference because, especially with Noah, with with Joe, we had played together. Uh, we have been playing together for many years in different settings, with different aesthetics, with different uh, goals. Uh, and this was meant to be just that specific thing mm-hmm. um, to extrapolate a certain intention, a certain kind of a nostalgia for for sound and um and we're going for that Thank mm-hmm. you. 
I'll just mention uh, for the listeners that Noah's been on the show, and if you check the archives at thejazzsession.com, you'll find an interview with him. So when you, uh, in this particular example, did learning this specific language, uh, for use of a better, want of a better word, did that change the way you played or improvised by kind of setting these, they're not so much parameters, but a certain feeling or a certain, as you say, a certain vertical structure, did that change the way you, you played in the moment when it com- came time to progress? It completely did. It completely did. It's like I remember when the three of us were studying with Joe Maneri, um, uh, we would be doing similar microtonal exercises um, uh, with Joe. And then they might have been followed by improvisations, which, which also were informed by that. Uh, in Joe Scan's case, it's, it's very similar. So we, we all had a similar history of going through these learning processes. So I would have been surprised if the improvisation hadn't been specifically referred to, to, to those, uh, to those um, moments. Um, I would say that, um, you know, again, I don't want to quote Feldman all, all the time. Uh, <laughs> I sound like <laughs> academic and boring, but... He, he, he was a pretty smart guy, though. So. Yeah. He, he was a pretty smart guy. Uh, he said um, that given the, the instrumentation basically writes the piece, mm-hmm. um, which is a provocation, but there's a, a lot of truth to that. Uh, we wanted this specific instrumentation with a, with a certain intention to absolutely do the improvising for us. Um, and I feel that we, we, we did, we achieved that. So uh, we were all pleased with, the, with, with this record. We are excited about it. You have once again given me a good segue, um, maybe somewhat unintentionally, but I was going to ask you, you, I'm not sure if you're the only one, but if you're not, you're one of very, very few electric bass players who have been on the jazz session, which is not due to any bias against the electric bass that I have. It's just that there, there aren't a ton of you um, mm. out there, at least that, I've, that I run across in my, in my work. Uh, so I'm, very, I'm just very interested in uh, how the electric bass either became or remained your instrument, and especially in this particular improvising context where I have to admit I mostly see people playing upright, and I'm really, it's very refreshing to hear you play. Well, thanks. Um, well, I guess the way I started playing bass, or I approached the instrument, is just um, an ordinary way most people do. Uh, students of mine, bass players I know, there, there wasn't anything uh, particularly interesting about it. Um, and the way I ended up following this sort of path is also something that I wouldn't know how to narrate in, in a linear way. Sure. So um, for sure I've been interested in unconventional you know, improvisation uh, and in contemporary music uh, for many years now. And, um, and I think I stopped hearing myself as a conventional jazz bass player which is what I wanted to be uh, in my teens um, long ago um, so um, was there ever any I'm sorry I didn't mean to interrupt you no 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 no. Uh, uh, I, I think I I was tempted to switch to a different instrument over the years at time uh, when I was younger but I, I I think I was subconsciously aware that I could have found something unique sticking with a strange instrument for what I was interested in. Yeah. Um, and sort of like fighting the history of the instrument 
um, from inside, you know, uh, from the inside. Uh, although I love the electric bass, and I there are electric bass players that I like a lot. Um, but uh, and I respect the, tra- the the main tradition of the bass for sure. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's been a, an interesting dichotomy that I that I was. Uh, uh, troubled with a little bit, and then I made peace with um, at least a dozen years ago. So, well, uh, one of the things. So, first of all, my main listening, just my pleasure listening, is is mostly you know pop and rock and funk music and hip hop, and so I mean the electric bass is a remarkably common tone to hear in that music. However, in the context of free improvisation. It hearing the bass provided by the electric bass, hearing the bass registers of the compositions and the improvisations provided by the electric bass is so it's just so uncommon in my experience. And I know it's not as uncommon as I'm making it sound. There are many electric bass players who who are out there in the improvising world. Um, but it just it always every time I start hearing you play, I just think, oh, yeah, it's great to hear something that the upright is wonderful, but it's great to hear something else. It's great to hear another way to approach the low end of this music besides an upright bass. There are other instruments that can provide that, which I really dig. Well, uh, well thank you. Um, um, I, well, I, I, think it, I think it's difficult to, um, to conceptualize the sound of the electric bass mm-hmm. outside of certain very safe realms. Um, um, I remember once I, I was talking to um, Joe Morris, who's also very influential, musician uh, for me um, also in, in terms of defining your own sound and uh, um, yeah very much so uh, and he said well you're making the, the electric bass sound like a real instrument um, which obviously you know again uh, it, it, it's a joke and should be a joke <laughs> but um, but the electric bass can sound like in a context of improvisation can sound almost like a a synthesizer sure it can really sound like a fish out of water and um, and I yeah I think it's it's challenging yeah sound wise to project the electric bass yeah and I, I remember the the first few times I heard like Bob Cranshaw play with Sonny Rollins and in fact I think it actually sounds more at home in your music often than it does in that context where the sound of an upright you know, it's as it's as expected, and it's as surprising to hear an electric as if Sonny started playing kazoo rather than saxophone. I mean, it's just a you know, it's always almost a shock the first few times I heard a record with an electric bass on it, and in that context, um, do, do you? Uh, how much are you interested in all of the sonic possibilities that are available to you because your instrument is electric and can be manipulated with effects fairly easily and those kinds of things? Is that a I am interested. I have been interested in, in that. Um, I I have experimented with preparation a lot um, in my, especially on my first record, the one with with Dave Tronzo. Uh, I think I play prepare bass on most uh, tracks. In other words, making doing actual physical things to the instrument itself. Physical things, yes. Uh, something that again comes from a lineage, a noble lineage. Of American music, uh, mostly American pioneers, and I, I like that a lot. It's a tradition that I is very dear to me, you know, from Harry Cowell uh, on, um, 
Uh, and also because of the inherent references to a lot of world music that I love a lot when mm. you start preparing conventional Western instruments. So um, I have played with preparation, I, and I still to this day, when I play with Nico, for instance, um, in some context, although I think I steer towards a pure approach um, in the past couple of years. So I, I try to really go with the bare, naked bass, also in terms of using pedals. Most of my pedals are here in the closet. Um, I bring a volume pedal now on stage, and for most of what I do, I don't bring any effects, hmm. although I like them. Um, but, um, and so yeah, what, why is that? Why, are you, why is the pure approach appealing to you these days? It's, it's, well, it might be just a phase. Sure. Um, that's very possible, so that could be cyclical. Um, or it could be that, um, that I'm trying to find challenges on the technical level, one of which is to renounce a lot of things. Um, and I think, in reality, it's a lot due to that. Uh, I'm really trying, just trying to face the instrument and um, work on my technique. Yeah, so you're kind of stripping things down to your body and the instrument itself. Uh, yeah, yeah. I've never played an electric bass or an electric guitar either. Um, and forgive me again if this is a dumb question, but how how individual can those instruments sound given... Like if, if five different bass players played exactly your bass plugged into exactly your amp, would we hear five completely contrasting sounds or would we hear less contrast due to the electric nature of the instrument? Well, I, or is that a ridiculous that, question? No, no, it's not. A, I mean, if I had, the problem is if I had an answer to that question, I'd be a happier man than I am. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I wish I could answer that. I guess the choir would start singing and right, yeah, <laughs> nice. You know, um, uh, 
I don't know. I, I think yeah, more in general that uh, the musicians that I like uh, have an, an extremely unique sound on their instruments, uh, whatever the instrument may be. And on the electric bass, it's objectively uh, harder for me to find this sort of a uh, personal uh, poetics mm -hmm. on the, built into the sound. Um, but I, I, I don't think it's, it has to do with the instrument that much. It's mostly a problem. Um, it's mostly a cultural problem. You know, like, I guess it's, there are less electric bass players who have a struggle to express a very personal vision of the world. You know, sure. On the instrument. So, yeah. But those who do, uh, I love very much. So Yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, I grew up listening to prog rock mostly, um, and... You know, there there are definitely like keyboard players, synthesizer players who I can recognize. But obviously, you know, if they all play exactly the same synthesizer, what I'm recognizing them by is not the synthesizer itself. I'm recognizing them by what they choose to do with it. Though I would say that there are some people like I think you can or at least I find like Herbie Hancock or Chick Corea synthesizer playing pretty immediately recognizable even if they're both playing the same instrument i think they both sound very unique on those instruments but i think that's really difficult to achieve that's just one of those things that strikes me as a hard yeah much harder than on a saxophone or a trumpet or something where your your actual physicality is making much greater difference in the sound produced that's for sure that is for sure um and it would be the case uh for me with joe zavino sure who, uh, who i really grew up listening to um uh, more than anybody for for years, as far as uh, uh, keyboard players or synthesizer players. But you know, th there's an aspect to that which also has to do with the sound design part of it, and how some musicians really craft uh, a very individual recipe uh, of the parameters of their sounds, so they really end up with a signature signature sound. So things that are almost inaudible, maybe, but they are still part of you know. They're very signature sounds. And, and then, of course, you know, the, the technique itself is something that can, can actually make it through anything, I guess, even the most synthetic yeah. um, sound uh, process. Yeah. Uh, while I'm here in New York this weekend, I'm staying with Ken Filiano and Andrea Wolper, and, uh, who are two of my closest friends. And today for the very first time in my life, I played an upright bass. I said to Ken, Hey man, I've never played an up bass. Can you, can we take one of these and can you show me just something? And it was fascinating because he, while in the, in the course of showing me, I mean, I just played and messed around and then he showed me a few things and he would demonstrate the different arm positions of players that he liked. And as he just moved his left arm, the arm that was fingering the notes, just the entire sound of what he was playing changed with these almost not invisible, but they were very small movements of his arm. And it was just really, it really struck me how individualized that kind of thing. I mean, just like the posture, the way you stand, the way your, your fingers touch, whatever the instrument is. I mean, those things are so, they have such an effect almost out of proportion to what you might think. Yeah. They have. No, I, I know exactly what I mean. I mean, you, you were lucky you had a very good teacher yes. you know, who was able to articulate. <laughs> you know, he is, is a fantastic bass player. Um, 
but it's very true you know the subtleties of the technique are immensely important um, and um, and the sound tradition that you belong to um, there's also that um, I was listening to Ram Blake uh, these past few days uh, Ran is a good friend a mentor for me a person that I I feel very very close to although I haven't seen him for three four years maybe now um, I mean his his sound is absolutely unmistakable like you know very few people on the piano right yeah um, and again it's technique but it's also the tra tradition that you belong to that just hopefully um, is represented by your notes. Sure. So as folks are listening to this, it's the beginning of June, June 2nd of 2014. Um, can you talk about some things that are coming up, particularly your series? Um, yes. Uh, I started curating a concert series at a space in um, Windsor Terrace, Brooklyn, uh, two months ago. Well, actually last month, April 2014. And it's a little series. It's a monthly event uh, called uh, Solo o Los... Uh, concert series at Prospect Range, which is a, a nice, uh, small, but very, very nice space um, in Windsor Terrace. And so we had Nate Woolley play in April. Um, uh, for me, it's a luxury to invite some of my favorite improvisers. Um, they, they come, they uh, do a little, give a little presentation to the audience. Uh, they play some records. They talk about um, something uh, and then they play a solo set and then we improvise uh, as a duo to, to finish the, the, little, the little formula uh, so we had Nate uh, last month uh, Darius Jones was playing uh, this month so that was last night um, uh, June is Mike Pride who's going to be uh, presenting his solo record coming out next month 
And uh, so what date is that in June? That is the 26th okay, of June. Right. Uh, and then in July, we have Bernix playing guitar. Wow. Uh, whom I like very much. And Dan Blacksburg uh, in August. Wow, that that's is a great calendar. So I'm very excited about it. Is uh, it the same relative day of the month? The third Wednesday, the fifth Thursday, whatever it is? Uh, or is it, is it just a specific date that's n- not the same? No, I, I mean, I, I, it's actually a Thursday of the month. Okay. With the exception of yesterday. Uh, okay. Yesterday was Friday. <laughs> but then we're trying to do a Thursday of the month. Okay. But um, it's just a Thursday. Sure. Uh, uh, that's as uh, programmatic as we could get with this. And uh, where can folks find the schedule for it? Um, they can go to prospectrange.com. Uh, uh, there's also a Facebook page, which I created. It's uh, facebook.com slash concert series. Okay. And I, I keep it up to date with uh, news or anything, you know, changes of calendar, if there were any, of course. Great. And I'll make sure that there are links to those in the show notes for this episode. So, folks, if you go to thejazzsession.com, you can click on those links and get right to those places. Uh, you also mentioned a European project. Or you mentioned off the mic a European project oh, that you're in the process of. Well, yeah, uh, I, I've been, uh, I will be doing a, a recording and some performances um, in the late summer, um, uh, September to October, uh, in Denmark and probably Sweden, although the calendar is still in the process of being consolidated, uh, with my friend, guitarist Brian Baker, uh, who doesn't live in New York. I mean, he was in New York, actually. Uh, now he's living in Italy, he's moving back to the West Coast soon, and he's a friend of mine. Uh, is a fantastic guitarist and uh, we'll be doing some stuff in Europe with a German drummer so we'll be starting in Denmark in late September I think that's great another project I know you've been working on involves uh, curating a CD that comes with an Italian jazz magazine right so talk a bit more about that yes yes Uh, this uh, Italian um, jazz magazine uh, called Musica Jazz uh, which is the most historical uh, magazine of about jazz we have in Italy uh, uh, always comes with a CD and a writer who writes for Musica Jazz uh, recently asked me to co-curate a three CD compilation uh, which is going to be devoted to sort of new tendencies new sounds uh, especially from New York so I've been helping him uh, get some people involved and uh, as you can imagine I've been uh, taking care of the edger uh, part sure. of the bunch, and so so that's nice. Um, we'll see how the Italian uh, audiences will receive some of this stuff. Are you allowed to tell us anybody who's on this uh, compilation? Uh, yeah, yes. I uh, I have uh, I contacted Anthony Coleman, um, maybe with the Self Haters, which is a project of his that I particularly love. But I don't know if he's going to go uh, with that. So. Uh, we don't know. Um, I contacted John Hollenbeck, um, Alice No Axis, so that's Jim Black. It's just some bands that I think are very relevant to New York. Sure. Um, and that I don't even know in Italy how aware. Maybe they are somewhat aware. Yeah. Of, but uh, they should be part of a, of something that is representing current New York, I think. And uh, uh, maybe Little Women with Darius as well 
and Nate Woolley I contacted about this and there are two three more names but I haven't I haven't picked up the phone yet so sure I'm not gonna <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep those as surprises that yeah. sounds great well, my guest is electric bassist Giacomo Medica, and uh, it's man, it's been great to talk to you. I really enjoyed kind of delving into your thoughts on the music. I thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Jason. It's been really nice. That's music from bassist Giacomo Merega. Thanks so much to Giacomo for being on the show. Thanks also to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this program. Thanks to Dave Rabel for the logo. If you need writing done for your business or artistic venture, maybe for your new album, maybe for an upcoming concert series, maybe you need some liner notes, please visit cranewrites.com, where I do all of those kind of things. Cranewrites.com. Thanks so much for listening. Come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the jazz session.
Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.